This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you politics without the boring bits. You can listen to me live on Times Radio, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up is this week, Rishi Sunak's worst week yet. There's lots of competition for it. We speak to Steve Swinford, the political editor of the Times, Phil Cowley, who knows a lot about rebellions to gauge just how much unrest there is on the Tory benches. Before that, let's take a look at Boris Johnson giving evidence to the Covid inquiry for the second day. If yesterday was all about the early part, the run-up, January, February, March 2020, today we've sort of moved on to the, the second, the latter part of 2020, heading into the summer and eat out to help out and then into the autumn with going into tears and can we save Christmas and all of that. Callum MacDonald, Times Radio's Callum MacDonald's been watching it along with me. And Boris Johnson's been saying about how he was perplexed at the way that Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance, government's two top scientific advisers, they claim not to have known about the Eat Out to Help Out scheme before it was published. You'll remember this was Rishi Sunak's big idea to get people out and spending money in hospitality. You got £10 off your food and, and soft drinks. Boris Johnson's acknowledged there were no scientists in the room when the meal discount scheme was discussed. And at the COVID inquiry, Hugo Keith Casey questioned Boris Johnson about the wisdom of Eat Out to Help Out. I don't think that I uh, thought that that scheme in itself was a, uh, a particular gamble at the time. And I, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't presented to me uh, as such, nor am I confident that there is very substantial evidence that it did indeed add to the, uh, to the R. Uh, so that's uh, Boris Johnson talking about whether or not it added to the R, a sort of retro reminder of all the language that we were across. Yeah. Um, uh, Callum McDonald, interesting this, I mean, not least because on a day when Rishi Sunak is, is in hot water, Boris Johnson not, not, not choosing to add to it, despite his obvious you know, history with uh, Rishi Sunak, defending the decision of the Treasury and, and him as Prime Minister uh, to, to encourage people to hospitality, mm. he says, because it, the scientists had agreed that it was, it was safe to, to open up. Yeah, exactly. So he explained more about it, saying the thinking was that the country had made a huge effort, we'd got the R down below one, the disease was no longer spreading in the way that it had been. And this phrase kicked off the morning, several, it was repeated several times, it was within the budget of risk. 
it was now possible to open up uh, hospitality and to sort of take advantage, said Boris Johnson, of the freedom that our collective efforts had won them. It seemed to me to make sense to make sure that the hospitality industry, to make sure that they actually had customers. But you're right, there wasn't much by way of sort of critique or criticism of the Chancellor. Rather, there was this seeming contradiction with what we'd um, already gathered from uh, Chris Whissey, who was Chief Medical Officer for England, excuse me, still is Chief Medical Officer for England, and Sir Patrick Valance, who was Chief Scientific Advisor to the government at the time. Um, I think that was the sort of the most notable takeaway. It was the kind of discussion around the idea, the merit of something like the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Um, Boris Johnson, I remember being surprised later, I think in September, when Chris Whitty said it was Eat Out to Help the Virus. I don't remember any previous controversy about it. So this is a good example of recollection, recollection excuse me, differing somewhat. Recollections may vary. As it's the varying the indeed. May, uh, once said on a different, uh, different topic. Uh, Hugo Keith Casey also brought up multiple times this idea, and it was reported actually at the time during, during the pandemic, that Boris Johnson had used the phrase, let the virus rip. Uh, let's just take a listen to that exchange. Could you please look at the diaries? Sorry, I, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that this was a phrase in common uh, parlance at the time and, 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 and remains so. Sir Patrick Valance's diary is 273901, page 92. Yes. Actually having a discussion, a meeting with the PM about, quote, letting it rip... Page. But, I don't wish to be. Uh, um, I'm just going to put rep- repetitive. But, I, but I, this I, is exactly what you'd expect me to be talking about at, at this stage. So Boris Johnson, they're saying, mm. well, it's my job as Prime Minister to listen to the economists, to listen to the scientists, to listen to the politicians, and ask the question: Is there an option which says, do we lift the restrictions and let rip? And then he's told by the scientists, no, and he absorbs that information. And actually, you know, he goes on, he then went on to say, well, look, you know, look at everything I did. I kept locking down. I wasn't letting anything let rip. Yeah, this was a really fascinating exchange because, and you got a glimpse of it, they're a really helpful glimpse, but uh, Hugo Keith Casey presented several extracts from Patrick Valence's diaries and evidence and whatnot to sort of build this suggestion that Boris Johnson had been sort of advocating this let it rip approach. But Boris Johnson's defence, you heard a glimpse of that as well, was that actually he was encouraging debate. At one point he said, I was the representative of the lay person in the room. I'm surrounded by scientists and experts. I had to be the one to ask these sorts of questions. There was an interesting part as well. Um, They were discussing a, a meeting on the 20th of September and he says, to which I listened with great care to that debate, the scientists who have been billed as the Let It Rip Brigade did not really support that approach, he said. I was fascinated to see how actually they migrated towards a precautionary approach, towards the understanding that NPIs, this phrase that keeps coming up, non-pharmaceutical interventions, basically lockdowns, were inevitable and we had to do something. I was really interested. I was thinking ahead. And so there's an interesting, I think, an interesting discussion for us all to have here, which is... If Boris Johnson was using that language, which, as you heard there, he says was just a common phrase, it's one of those things, mm. as, you know, it's being thrown around, that's just the way we understand it. If he was using that phrase to probe for more information and to get a grip on the understanding of what that approach would mean or not mean, and it would cancel out other approaches, is that a bad thing? Is there a lesson to be learned there was a, there, I suppose there's a difference between, did he say, should we let rip, or... Did he say we should let rip? Exactly. And the ordering of those two words mean mean two two very different things. Uh, he also spoke uh, Boris Johnson. There was the implication because uh, they moved on to Partygate, which actually was quite an interesting mm. uh, uh, move by Hugo Keith KC. Um, he he brought up actually a WhatsApp conversation between Boris Johnson 
and the then Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, or the now Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, sent in December 2021, so that was around the time all the Partygate revelations were coming out. In it, Boris Johnson wrote, in retrospect, we all should have told people, above all Lee Kane, who's his Director of Communications, to think about their behaviour in Number 10 and how it would look, but now we must smash on. So the implication there being that uh, they knew that some of the behaviour in Number 10 was not appropriate during uh, those parties and, and other gatherings and so on. Uh, but, you know, we need to basically smash on, whatever that means, pretend it didn't happen, say there were no parties, I suppose, yeah. uh, seemed to be the approach. Uh, and, and Hugo Keith sort of implied that he didn't care, therefore, about what had been happening. Uh, and this is uh, Boris Johnson's response. He, he, he began talking about his time in intensive care when he'd contracted COVID. I saw uh, around me a um, a lot of people uh, who were who were not actually elderly, um, and, they, and they, in fact they were middle aged men, um, and they were they were quite like me, and some of us were going to make it and some of us weren't, and what I'm trying to tell you, I knew from that experience what an appalling disease this is. I had absolutely no personal doubt about that. Uh, to say that I didn't care about the, the suffering that was being inflicted on the country is simply not right. And then actually Hugo Keith sort of clarified and said you didn't care about the reaction to Partygate and so on rather than the, uh, the, the deaths in particular. It's striking actually, and some people have been in touch pointing this out, uh, Callum, he, he seems to get most emotional when talking about himself. Yeah, I think... I mean, if you're being very cynical. Yeah, I think that is, that is not without credibility, that reflection. And perhaps there's an, uh, an understanding there, don't we all? But also there is, um, that is when the emotion breaks through and, uh, you know, it is difficult, yeah. it is intense. We've heard emotion actually from the public gallery again today at certain points during the evidence as well. It's notable also though that that, that sort of reflection from him, which he said, I've never said this in public before about his kind of time in intensive care. Again, that was the kind of culmination of this whole section on Partygate where he'd been reflecting on Dominic Cummings breaking lockdown rules to go to Barnard Castle. He described that as a bad moment. Um, it was a bad moment. I won't pretend otherwise, you know, dealing a blow to public confidence in that sort of way. Um, and then also this kind of, yeah, th th this approach, I suppose. And this, I mean, we knew this was coming. Partygate is such a visceral moment in the whole story of the pandemic. It is something that you hear in your focus groups, I think yeah. basically every time, Matt, people yeah. still remember it. It is potent. And actually it was one of the moments that uh, um, the... Uh, Chair uh, Baroness Hannah, I think, yeah. I had, to, had to like call for calm again in the room. Right. Yeah. Um, I suppose if we sort of zoom right out mm -hmm. as to where we are right now, are we learning anything new? I mean, I suppose by the, by the very nature, because we've had everyone else so far telling us what Boris Johnson was up to, yeah. we sort of knew already, yes, it was chaotic, there were dramas, there were egos and so on. I wonder actually if overall, and lots of people who hate Boris Johnson won't like this, is it slightly softening the impression that actually does it take us back to the the um, the public impression that we had certainly in that early part of twenty twenty of uh, benefit of the doubt? It was a tough thing to have done. He was doing his best. He was getting lots of contradictory advice. Mm. I I mean the thing we're not getting is any sense of 
how do we prepare better for the future? Which again, I think will just it's it's basically Boris Johnson in the dock again. Yeah, it's not uh, improving the way we run the country. I think that's right. With a couple of other thoughts, just to add to that, yeah. and I, I don't disagree. One is that yesterday, I think it was easier to say. Uh, exactly the benefit of the doubt argument. It was very much a foundation. I think today, by moving towards the end of 2020 and into 2021, there are lots of um, uh, sort of quite spiky moments around, well, why did you do that? You knew what was going to happen. Whether that's around the tier system, which Boris Johnson absolutely defended and said it was worth a shot um, to do sort of regional lockdowns instead of you know, locking everyone down. Then also there was an interesting um, couple of minutes spent on the reopening of schools in England for a day in uh, January 2021. And why on earth that came about? And there's a point made that Gavin Williamson, who was Education Secretary at the time, in his statement said, I had no autonomy to decide what was open and what was closed and how that would work. And basically, in that part of the pandemic, there was so much evidence and data and lessons actually arguably could already have been learned that I think it's more difficult to do benefit of the doubt around that 2020-2021 new year. I have explicitly been listening for Boris Johnson saying, here are some lessons to be learned. Now, with the disclaimer that I may have missed things, I am but one person and two years, but there are, I have two bullet points on Go this. On. Uh, we did try to make the rules as simple as possible. The effort to get people to self-isolate and avoid contact because of the complexities of human life became extremely complicated. For the future, we need to think about that. Uh, and then also um, on sort of the involvement of the Treasury um, doing cost-benefit analysis on all of these measures, what we need to have is some proper quantified analysis of the benefits of NPIs, again, lockdowns, and the downsides of lockdowns, because I think there's still too much uncertainty about those, as well as a proper understanding of the economic costs. And so you want these, use the word formalised, want some way for those two things to be formalised. So that's something else that he has explicitly said is something to take away from this inquiry as well. well thanks so much. Callum McDonald there, who's been taking us through Boris Johnson's evidence at the COVID inquiry. Boris Johnson very carefully, it has to be said, not to throw Rishi Sunak under a bus, which Rishi Sunak would probably appreciate, given that he's not having the best of weeks. He's probably just a bit surprised that the arm of friendship might come from, of all people, Boris Johnson. Up next, we ask, is this Rishi Sunak's worst week yet? On the Red Box Podcast. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. In a premiership dogged by worst weeks yet, is this Rishi Sunak's worst week yet? This is the Prime Minister at his press conference called with some haste earlier today. Today the government has introduced the toughest anti-illegal immigration law ever. Our bill today fundamentally addresses the Supreme Court's concerns over the safety of Rwanda. That is why we have spent the last three weeks working tirelessly to respond to their concerns and to guarantee Rwanda's safety in a new legally binding international treaty. The Supreme Court were clear that they were making a judgment about Rwanda at a specific moment 18 months ago and that the problems could be remedied. Today, we are confirming that they have been and that unequivocally, Rwanda is a safe country. Well, I'm joined now by Steve Swinford, the political editor of The Times. Steve, how bad is it for Rishi Sunak? Is it his worst week yet? I think it probably is, Matt. I think he tried to chart a middle ground course on Rwanda um, in a bid to kind of find a middle way through it. And in fact, he's ended up alienating both sides of the party. The, the left are very concerned about it. They think this Rwanda legislation goes too far. And the right obviously think it's not enough. So in trying to please everybody, he seems to have pleased nobody in the process. And that's a big problem for him. And there's a kind of circularity to this week, Matt. So he went to the 1922 committee on Wednesday night and his message was, we must unite or die. And that is exactly the same message he delivered nearly a year ago when he, when he first took office. He said, we've got to unite or die. Still, he's having this kind of massive parliamentary management problem, even though we're getting very close to an election. And unfortunately for him, some of his colleagues seem to have taken the unite or die message and they've opted for the latter. They've got no intention of uniting. You've got the hardliners who think he's not gone far enough on Rwanda and then the others who think they he's gone too far. And he's stuck in the middle with that. So uh, let's take Robert Jenrick, for example. So he has resigned on a point of principle. He says this legislation will not do the job that it's intended to do and will not resolve the Rwanda issue. But if you, if you speak to people around Robert Jenrick, they also make another point. They say he's a relatively young man. He's got a future in the Conservative Party and he does not want to be kind of bound by being a loyal ally of Rishi Sunak for the long term. So there is a, a broader calculation that people are making is, is the incentive for kind of staying in line and going with Rishi Sunak, or is there a broader incentive of maybe this guy is not going to win the next election, therefore I might as well have my principles and stand by my principles? Is there a, a moment where this tips over from grumpy MPs into a, a, a bigger challenge to his leadership, do you think? It's not there yet. So what I would note is that not many people are publicly talking about confidence letters. So you know what this place is like, Matt. People love writing stories about confidence letters going in. They get very excited. No one actually knows how many have gone into 
Graham Brady, the chairman of the 22. Nobody knows how many people have genuinely done it. It becomes a bit of a guessing game. But what I would note is that people aren't going there publicly. So far, it's just Andrea Jenkins. And quite interestingly this morning, Suella Bravman, who clearly, to a degree, it seems to me, hates Rishi Sunak, she was questioned at length this morning over whether she has put in a confidence letter or she, she is saying that Rishi has done. She's not going there yet. And if she's not going there yet, I don't think many others will. And you would be hearing more publicly based on our kind of quite long experience of this now, if this was a thing and it was going to get off the ground. Now, of course, I could be entirely wrong on this. And by the time this goes out, we could be there. But as far as I can see at the moment, based on conversations I'm having with people, that's not where we are yet. Well, let's try and get a sense of the scale of unrest, or at least the willingness of Tory MPs to not do as they're told, which is basically what number 10 would uh, would like them to do. Let's bring in uh, Philip Cowley, Professor of Politics at uh, Queen Mary. Um, uh, Phil, two events this week, largely unnoticed because of everything else which has been going on, COVID inquiry and Rwanda and so on, but they give us a sense of the ill discipline within the Tory party. Yeah, so uh, we had uh, the first of Rishi Sunak's government defeats in the Commons uh, this week. Um, uh, now, in itself, that's nothing, I think, that unusual about a government being defeated in the Commons. Every Prime Minister since 1970 has been defeated at least once in the House of Commons as a result of their own MPs defying the whip. The exception is Liz Truss, but we, you know, she has a little asterisk by her name in every politics <laughs> book going forward from now on. Uh, of course, even she got into real trouble over fracking in the, the Commons, even in the limited time she was there. So, so there is a you know defeats happen, and and that rebellion, which was twenty two Conservative MPs voting for Diana Johnson's amendment on contaminated blood, slightly overshadowed because it was a defeat. A later rebellion, which was actually larger, which was twenty eight Conservative MPs, uh, most of them not the same people, um, over vehicle emissions. Uh, so you had almost you know, close to 50 MPs, and I would add, although we can never say so definitively because it's very difficult to tell, um, just looking at the list of absences, it looks to me like there were quite a lot of deliberate abstentions on both votes as well. So on that one night, you had you know both wings, and this picks up on the point that we just heard, we had both wings of the party kicking off. And I suppose the other thing is, in the past, where a prime minister has lost a vote, you know, when you th- think back to, you know, big moments for Tony Blair or for, for David Cameron, they've been on massive, high profile, uh, uh, moments. I'm thinking of some of the sort of terror legislation around Tony Blair and that sort of thing, um, which sort of dominated the front pages. That's not what's happening here. The question of, uh, of compensation for, for victims of infected blood. And the the proportion of uh, cars that are sold that must be electric, they're important to the people involved, but they're not sort of iconic, totemic matters of high principle. These are Tory MPs demonstrating that they're they're fed up and they're not going to do as they're told. Yes, I think in, in, in their different ways, they also tell you something else. So I think the Diana Johnson vote is interesting because I suspect, and although I am always loathe to criticise whipping operations because it's easier to criticise from the outside than to do. I suspect this is a vote where with a bit more intelligence about what was coming, a good government operation would have been able to buy that vote off. And I suspect they didn't realise they were going to go down to defeat on it. That's my only suspicion there. <laughs> the, the the other one I think is actually more indicative of where a big chunk of the party is. I mean, it's the, it's the right of the party uh, not happy with 
the sort of environmental policies such as they are that are left. The other thing that I would say, though, about all of this is that, of course, just a few weeks ago, we had 50 plus Labour MPs rebelling mm. on uh, an issue. So although some of this is to do with short term factors that we've just heard, you know, the, the elections coming, discipline is collapsing. It is also part of a much longer trend towards more independent minded MPs who are just not going to be told what they what to do all the time. And I suppose uh, bringing Steve Swinford back in, part of the problem is for uh, Rishi Sunak is that at the tail end of a parliament, at the tail end of a government, if you look at the polls, uh, why would you do what you're told by uh, um, Rishi Sunak when, you know, clearly we've got certainly Robert Jenrick and Suella Barman thinking about the Tory leadership after an election defeat. And you've got other MPs who are either thinking about the same thing, positioning themselves for afterwards, or... You know they're 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 standing down at the next election, or they're going to be stood down by their electorate. So what's the point? Why not just vote how you want to vote? That's exactly right, Matt. And I was having someone at lunch the other day who pointed out there is going to be this huge wave of Tory MPs who are announcing that they're leaving. They've had long careers. They've been around for thirteen years now. The Tories, and they're going to be standing down at the next election. They have nothing to lose. I'm told that some of them are kind of going around the city openly touting themselves for different jobs. So if you're these people. Why, why would you die on this particular hill or that particular hill? You're going to start saying what you think, and that is very dangerous for any prime minister. And I went to a press conference with Rishi Sunak today, Matt, and he was tetchy. He was. He said Robert Jeremy was wrong to resign. He said the differences between those on the right who want me to go harder on where we've gone is an inch, just an inch. But he sounded tetchy and he sounded irritated. And one of the other strange things about this whole Rwanda saga is the handling of it. They didn't have to do it yesterday. They didn't need to do it. We were, in fact, briefed that they were going to do all this emergency legislation stuff next week. But they seem to have kind of decided to ram it through without a press conference, without any of the kind of theatrics around it you'd usually expect. Instead, we got this morning's emergency press conference. And it, it, something strange is going on in number 10 at the moment. Right? It doesn't seem as organized as you'd expect or as together as you'd expect on this stuff. And they've kind of tried to rush it out the door and it's culminated in Robert Jenrick's resignation. Um, and that is a kind of broader issue of what is happening in number 10. Are they gripping things and is there enough grip? Just on that, that specific of what's happening in number 10, Steve, um, there was clearly briefing going on because journalists, lots of different outlets were all tweeting the same thing. Rishi Sunak was about to have a back me or sack me moment, a sort of throwing down the gauntlet to his opponents within his own party. Look, this is the only plan on the table. Get behind it or... Um, you know, see if you've got the numbers to get rid of me. And he didn't do that, actually rendering the whole thing slightly pointless. So what he said is that next week's vote, which is the second reading of this Rwanda stuff, is not going to be a vote of confidence. So he's not going to say to MPs, back me or I'll strip you of the, the whip. He's going to leave it kind of open like that and hope that that is enough to get it through. But it doesn't mean next Tuesday is still quite defining because people have more freedom than they might otherwise have. So you're not going to get martyrs dying in a ditch over stuff, but you could get people at principle not backing it or perhaps more likely abstaining, tabling some pretty hefty amendments in the process. And the whole thing over the next month is going to get quite bloody, I think, and it's going to be very testing for Rishi Sunak. The, the other thing about all of this, of course, we've talked about MPs who are standing down or positioning themselves for leadership positions. There will also be those MPs who are trying to fight the next election, but think that by distancing themselves somehow from the party, by rebelling, 
they can pitch a slightly, you know, yes, the government's rubbish, but I voted against them on this and therefore vote for me. There is, I should say, no evidence this will work at all. I mean, there's just historically, absolutely no evidence. You go down with the ship altogether. Well, that was what I was going to ask you, actually, Phil. You, you know, you've been writing about this for a long time, your book Revolts and Rebellions and, and monitoring, you know, what the, the tipping point of when a, when a prime minister loses control. There is also just a point, you know, it's a truism in politics for a reason, that divided parties do not win elections. And the very act of everyone piping up with, well, we should be doing this or you should be doing that, or if only we were more hardline or a bit less hardline, the very act of them all doing it actually makes the job of winning the next election harder. Even if deep down they think, well, this policy might be more popular. The truth is them turning it into this circus, the very act of that makes it harder for Rishi Sunak to win the next election, Phil. Absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting today in his uh, statement, apart from the tetchiness that we've already talked about, that he was clearly pitching for Labour support on this vote because he doesn't think, and this ties the two topics together, he clearly doesn't think he can get it through the Commons uh, just on Conservative votes. Now, there is not a hope in hell of Labour MPs getting that vote uh, through. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that though they've announced the date of the second reading of that vote, I think they've announced no other date for any bit of the legislation to go through yet, uh, which makes it extremely unlikely to me that even if it went through, which it may not, that it will won't get through till before Christmas. And then, of course, there's the question of uh, of any legal challenges that they follow. The prospect of a plane taking off is very limited. And even then, if it did take off, there's no actual guarantee that it will, in in the face, uh, stop the boats. I just wonder, just that both of you have been watching politics for uh, for a long time. Given everything that's happened this week, and if it is indeed Rishi Sunak's worst week yet, does this make the election... Uh, more or less likely to come sooner than we expect. When do you think the election now looks like it's going to be, Steve, first of all? Uh, I'm I'm going to say that it is still where it's always been. It will not be an early election. I'm going to put my chips on that. When I talk to people, they make the point, there's all this noise around migration. Yes, it's an issue. Yes, voters are concerned about it. But this election will be all about the economy. And that's all elections are really all about the economy and the Tories need more time for the economy to improve if they have any hope. And crucially, they need the spring budget and any measures that they announce in that spring budget to have had time to bet in. So I would place all my chips on betting at an election in autumn of next year. But that's not to say there won't be rampant speculation about him going early. And that's the norm in this place. I still think it's very likely to be autumn of next year. Philip Cowley? Uh, I mean, I agree, but with the only caveat to that is that it will be early if it just collapses. I mean, it, it, and and you could imagine a scenario in which, for example, next week they lose this bill at second reading, which would be only the second time in the entire 20th and 21st century that a government with a secure majority has lost a bill at second reading um, on what is a central piece of the legislation. And at that point, either he says he can't do it anymore or that he's ousted or I don't know. That aside, I've always thought it that he'd go long. I can't see he's, he doesn't look to me like the sort of prime minister who would gamble on an election when you're 20, 15, 20 points behind in the polls. Nothing about him says he's that sort of person. And so I've always assumed it will be late uh, next year. My, 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 likely, my, my, my probability of that has actually diminished in the last few days because things are getting so bad that I can see a scenario under which it all just collapses. 
Well, what a cheery note to end on. Uh, really good to speak to you. Uh, Philip Cowley, uh, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University. Stephen Swinford, a political editor of The Times. Thanks both for joining us on the Red Box podcast. Uh, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And get in touch. Let us know what you think. When do you think the election is going to be? Email me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.